Our Protestant brothers will say, hey, well, you know, you have to discern if that's from God or not. But the reality is those fruits are unmatched by anything. The millions of conversions, the entire continent converted. And what came out of that? Repentance, turning to Jesus. There's really nothing to discern. If you're gonna fight the importance of Guadalupe, I think you have to take a hard look at yourself and say, am I looking to justify myself? Am I looking to say what I believe is right? Or am I really looking to see what heaven is doing? Now, I know many of you saw the show I did with Drew Mason, who was telling us about the missing Bible verses um, in Matthew 21, just completely missing from Bibles, about fasting. The key to defeating Satan that our Lord gave to his apostles removed from the Bible. I want to go a little bit deeper into that today, because in addition to fasting, there's ways of praying that we need to learn about that most I'd even say most Catholics don't know anything about it. Certainly I didn't about one aspect of this. This is the John Henry Weston Show. Stay tuned. Drew Mason, so good to see you again. Thank you so much for having me, John Henry. Praise be Jesus. Let's begin as we always do with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Drew, Tell us about this prayer. Uh, I was I was stunned because when you mentioned about um, prayer in the fourth watch, I had not heard that before, and then learned that it's actually in the scriptures. But give it to us from the beginning, if you will. Fasting is the power that overcomes evil when it's strongest, but it can only be effective if it's in combination with prayer. And I don't believe, John Henry, that most Catholics in particular really know how to pray. They haven't been formed. And so some of the things you kindly asked us to share that we do when we're, we're, we're fasting, how we pray, the first thing that you're referring to is when we pray. And if you go back to Genesis, it said that God came and spoke to Adam during the cool of the day. It was unprecedented communication for humanity with heaven at that time. And the science tells us the cool of the day is 3 to 6 a.m. approximately. So fast forward to Jesus, and what we see in the Gospels is again and again, Scripture telling us he went out to pray well before sunrise, during the fourth watch. And then Scriptures explicitly tell us one of the greatest, most powerful manifestations of his divinity came during the fourth watch, when he did something that had never happened in history before. He walked on water and went out to the boat to meet the apostles and calmed the storm. And there, they really realized he who he was because he didn't pray to God to calm the storm. He commanded the storm as Lord to be calm. So all that happened during the fourth watch. And John Henry, I think we have a lot to learn from our Protestant brothers um, about prayer. And they have a great insight on this. And their, their analogy they'll often make is, if you want to make progress, if, if you want to hear from God and you want to quickly make progress and deepen your relationship with him, Praying during the fourth watch versus other times of the day would be like flying from city to city versus walking. The Holy Spirit will just speak to you with such an abundance of insights. You're going to have trouble handling all the content he's giving you if you're a pastor looking for ideas, et cetera. So I think that's a super powerful time, and we would encourage people to start with that. Then the second, once we're, once we're there. You know, and the Holy Spirit often will just wake people up. Don't think, oh, I got to go back to sleep. I'm tired. Think of it as a divine appointment. The Holy Spirit wants to spend time with you. And he's whispering to you, I have gifts for you. So you get up, you take, you make the commitment, you go and you sit in your favorite 
comfy chair. And then what do you do? Well, the word worship, I don't think most Catholics realize, means praise. So when we go to Sunday worship, it's not us showing up with our sad song or our want list, our obligation, our duty. What God expects of us is to praise him because he fully deserves it. And that's how we want to start our praying. Praise is the threshold that allows us to come into his presence and praise precedes miracles. So the way we praise, of course, is starting to tell him how you know, your favorite things, his extraordinary brilliance, his power, and hanging the stars where he did, lighting the sun, making the ocean surge, the mountains so beautiful. Then we sing. Um, scriptures again tell us, sing again and again. Sing a song to the Lord. And when you sing, God doesn't hear your voice. He hears your heart. So if you are miserly and you say, oh, I'm too tough to sing, or my voice doesn't sound good, he doesn't care. He wants to hear you sing. And specifically, when I encourage people to sing songs of praise to him. So we always start out with Holy Spirit by Battistelli. The words in it are extraordinary. She talks about how once you come into his presence, there's nothing else that can compare. When we sing, we want to encourage you to sing uh, songs of praise. And there are some fabulous ones. I'm just going to list a handful of them here for you that if you're not familiar with them, uh, I think you will like them very much. Holy Spirit by Battistelli is what we start with because heaven has told us when you pray, pray first for the Holy Spirit, and then you will have everything. An extraordinary insight that heaven has spoken to believers. Tremble by Lauren Daigle, First by Daigle, Oceans by Hillsong, Unrivaled from Lakewood, I Speak Jesus, that powerful song, Speaking the Name of Jesus. No matter what time of year it is, we love Noel by Chris Tomlin, Protector by Kim Smith, Your Great Name by the awesome Natalie Grant, I Can Only Imagine by Mercy Me, Beautiful Name by Hillsong. I'm listening to these so that if people are looking for content, those are great songs to sing. And when we sing, I want to encourage you to get your paws up, right? When we see in scripture, when Moses raised his hands, they were victorious. It was him in praise. And often, you know, people sit in uh, Catholic churches with their arms folded and just body language that says, you're not that excited to be there. You're not happy to be there. So I want to encourage you, as silly as you may feel, show them that you're super happy to be in his presence. Show them that you're so thrilled that he considers you so important to him. And then, of course, we turn to scripture and we read a little bit of scripture. Um, Our Lady has said at one point, read the scriptures every day. She makes the point that it's almost um, impossible to understand how significant it is to pray every day. Almost perhaps like if you were scuba diving and one day you thought, I'm just going to go without my backpack, without my oxygen. You would never do that. She's saying it's that important. So in the scriptures program that we use is just the mass readings. Every day, those readings from mass are the most studied passages in the world. And they were chosen decades and centuries ago before anyone knew what today was, but the spirit knew with his articulate and his, his extraordinary plan of detail. And those words, I think, will speak to you in your life, and it is what is on the mind of the spirit. So those first few ideas there for you, John Henry, clearly our Protestant brothers would say, hey, we've championed this, and that's how our Protestant brothers pray. And I take great inspiration from them. And if you look at the fruits from many of these independent Protestant churches, you see the Holy Spirit is working powerfully through them. And I think we want to, you know, learn from that, take some of the points from them that we can improve upon in our own church, because I'd say in 98% of the cases, we're agreeing and we need to improve our unity. Those first points, John Henry, I have really learned from my experiences with the Protestant churches. And I love praying with our Protestant brothers. 
The next two points of how we pray are viewed as Catholic. And these points I, I place great importance to because they have been emphasized by the greatest miracles in Christendom since the Bible was written. So today we happen to be recording this, no coincidence, on December 12th, which I would say is the greatest miracle we know. 500 years ago, there was this talk given by this preacher woman who went right into the heart of satanic worship in Latin America, where although it was called Aztec religion, was satanic worship. They would literally cut the hearts out of living beings and offer them up to Satan as a blood sacrifice. Christianity had failed. The missionaries had gotten nowhere. She shows up and she says to do exactly what Abraham had done. It was an echo of Abraham, where after the angel appeared to Abraham, he went and he built an altar to offer a sacrifice. She said, build an altar here to Jesus. And what happened? Christianity flourished. That is why it wasn't the Catholic missionaries. It was that spectacular miracle that made Latam Christian. And today, the idea that that talk, those words were so important to God that you and I can go to Latin America today, see a miracle with our own eyes that science today still can't even begin to explain is evidence that heaven was emphasizing this. And our Protestant brothers will say, hey, well, you know, you have to discern if that's from God or not. But the reality is those fruits are unmatched by anything. The millions of conversions, the entire continent converted and what came out of that? Repentance, turning to Jesus. There's really nothing to discern. If you're going to fight the importance of Guadalupe, I think you have to take a hard look at yourself and say, am I looking to justify myself? Am I looking to say what I believe is right? Or am I really looking to see what heaven is doing? The second extraordinary miracle, perhaps the second most, I would say, in history, John Henry, was in Fatima. hundred years ago, we had this biblical echo of Esther and of Isaiah where 75,000 people saw the sun look like it was ripped out of its orbit and come hurtling towards them as the sun was, uh, of course, was rearranged in the Old Testament. And as an echo of Noah, God had flooded the world with Noah. Here he dried up the floods in a period of moments. No one could explain how that happened. And what was the message there? Again, it was biblical. Repent, turn to Jesus. But here she gave a little more granularity and said, pray the biblical meditation of the rosary. And she actually gave an ultimatum with that miracle, saying, if you want peace, pray the rosary. So I would say to our Protestant brothers, again, look at Fatima, but look at fruits, look at the teachings, because Jesus said a, a house divided can't stand against itself. Look at how she explicitly talked about evil and how Christians have to defend themselves against it. So it gives credence to the idea of the rosary. Now, as, our, as Mary has explained, she was asked, should we pray to you or pray to God? Protestants will be so glad to know. She explicitly said, direct every prayer to God. But she said, if you would like me to pray with you, I will gladly do so. We have only one mediator, and that's Jesus. But we can intercede for one another, like you can intercede for me, I can intercede for you. And there's nothing in Scripture that says once you die, you can no longer pray for others. Just the opposite. We see all these thousands of cases of near-death experiences, and the people often see links where people they loved are interceding for them. So it supports that. And this biblical prayer is to God the Father. Some Protestants may say, well, you know, how can that be when the words of the prayer that's recited the most is, Hail Mary, full of grace? What I think she's clearly telling us is, um, we're to pray that to God the Father. When we do, we're quoting him 
his favorite scripture verse of all time. He had all eternity to think of the birth announcement for his son. And those are the words he picked. Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. So we're quoting that, this greatest hit, when the Trinity will never act in a similar way again, right? The Holy, this was the wedding of the Holy Spirit. He took his girl. He took Mary at this moment. Jesus became man. This is never going to be replicated again. And so that is the essence of that Hail Mary prayer. We're quoting it to God the Father. So I think Protestants can very comfortably understand that the rosary is a biblical meditation to God. And this is, again, being held up by the greatest miracles that Christendom has seen to emphasize its importance. And then, and then the last type of prayer that I would emphasize, which is paramount above all others, is the Eucharist, which obviously is scriptural coming from the Last Supper. And I would say to our Protestant brothers, you know, who often practice communion, Look, however, at, again, the miracles that heaven is holding up that we see through the Catholic Mass, the Catholic celebration of the Eucharist. We have case studies that are hundreds of years old that, again, like Guadalupe, are inexplicable, where there is a heart tissue that has never deteriorated, where you have these miracles across the world. It's always the same blood type. Heaven has told us that we will never be able to fully appreciate how powerful that moment is. And what I would say to our Protestants brothers is, although I love, you know, singing with them, praying, etc., I believe the time is going to come when we die, when we will gladly trade all the prayers, all the worship, all the singing, all the good experiences in our life combined for the chance to go to Mass just one more time, to receive the Eucharist just one more time in a worthy state. What the monks and nuns did for centuries is actually listed in the scriptures and encouraged for all of us to engage it. That was startling and stunning. Just a quick note before we return. If you would like to stay up to date on LifeSite's coverage of the latest life, family, and culture news, subscribe to one of our many newsletters by going to lifesitenews.com slash subscribe. And if you'd like to help us bring our truth-telling coverage to millions around the world, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation at give.lifesitenews.com. And now, back to the video. Allocate a portion of your wealth to whatever you think looks best, but make sure you have a portion, especially if you're a conservative, allocated to gold, because nothing has protected wealth like gold through the centuries. And that's our message, John Henry. Just recently, the head of pensions in the U.S. government talked about avoiding a financial apocalypse. And for that reason, they had to send $36 billion to prop up pensions for the Teamsters. There have been something similar seen in the U.K. What in the world is going on with finances around the globe? We have with us Drew Mason, who works with LifeSite in getting people to get gold. Uh, as part of St. Joseph's Partners. Public talk about a fan financial apocalypse. I mean, we were always worried, you know, as we were looking at the deficit in Canada, in the United States, and elsewhere. I wonder if the money that I'm constantly putting toward pension is actually going to come back. But everybody said, oh, yeah, it's going to, it's going to, no problem, no problem. Except things are looking very strange right now. What's really going on? 
What happened was last week, the U.S. government announced that they were investing this $36 billion because the head of pensions in the Senate said it was necessary, quote, to avert a financial apocalypse. Now, John Henry, this $36 billion one-time injection is not going to be enough to stem what is going on. It's just basically wasted money that they're throwing at something, trying to avoid what is unavoidable. And what has happened, John Henry, is, and this is something that we have also seen just play out in the UK as well, these pensions uh, have obligations that they must pay out to retirees. And historically, pensions have had a heavy allocation to fixed income because of the yield they could count on the income each year to meet these obligations. But as the central banks have pushed interest rates to abnormally low levels, levels literally never seen in 5,000 years of financial history, where in Europe, they actually turned negative. It began to create this unexpected stress in the financial system where they no longer had income to match with these demands, these needs for their pensioners. So what happened was the financial firms began coming up with products of excess leverage so they could still invest in, in bonds and the excess leverage would allow them to get the income they needed because after all, everybody knows bonds never go down, right, John Henry? So as always, the unexpected seemed to surface and not only did the bonds go down, but the leverage these pension systems had compounded and made the losses even worse. So we first saw um, Great Britain uh, doing an about face uh, recently when they had been raising rates to fight inflation, uh, their central bank. And then they seemed to get a, a call from above saying we have to, uh, you know, our pension systems on the verge of eviscerating. And they did an about face. Come across the pond here. And last week, we saw something similar in the US with this $36 billion injection into the Teamsters. And what I would really just want to leave with viewers is the urgency of what is going on. When you see public institutions being forced to put up capital to preserve the wealth of these plans, you don't want to have all of your assets aligned with what is obviously a very stressed market, or they wouldn't need to come in and, and invest this money in the first place, right? I mean, if you back up a step, QE, uh, Fed chairman has been saying since 2010, they were going to withdraw that liquidity right away and right-size the balance sheet. Well, they haven't just forgotten about it. They haven't been able to do it because they know if they took that artificial liquidity out, the market would be extraordinarily stressed. So what we say to our clients is, obviously, we're hoping for the best. We're not rooting for a market correction. However, you don't want to build your future, especially your retirement, on hope. You want to have an allocation that historically has thrived when these other assets, stocks, bonds, and real estate are stressed. And historically, gold has done just that. If you go back and you look through the hundreds of case studies that history offers us, for those who will look, you see that when a country becomes overly indebted, it leads to a depreciation in the value of its currency and a commensurate shift in wealth to gold. And so we would say to investors, you don't need to sell everything. We're not talking about Armageddon. We've seen this hundreds of times, but you want to have eyes wide open. You don't want to be scared. Be on your front foot. Allocate a portion of your wealth to whatever you think looks best, but make sure you have a portion, especially if you're a conservative, allocated to gold because nothing has protected wealth like gold through the centuries. And that's our message, John Henry. 
what is happening? It's very hard for those of us who aren't looking at financial markets, who aren't in the stock market or anything else, to really understand how this all works from the ground up. Can you give us just a, a sort of simple run through as to where we are right now financially? We've had the worst start to a year for stocks and bonds combined in an extraordinarily long period of time. So the idea is that stocks and bonds were complementary, is really being blown out of the water. You're seeing the biggest financial firms in America now admitting that they can both go down at the same time. Why is that? It's the simple laws of finance that are irrefutable. And that is when inflation rears its head, the value of stocks and bonds and real estate compresses because all those assets are, are expected cash flows in the future. And the higher inflation, the less those cash flows are worth. So we're seeing these multiples compress. Having said that, with all the, the pain that's happened this year, today, as we're taping this, we are still at levels that were equal to the prior bubble peak in the dot-com era. So we have been so richly valued. People don't appreciate how we're still in the stratosphere from historic valuations. So as inflation we believe won't be transitory, like the press says, we think the reprieves from inflation will be transitory. As inflation persists, you're going to continue to see pressure on the valuations of those assets. In the 1970s, for example, which was the last time America saw significant inflation over a prolonged period, the S&P multiple was cut in half. Meanwhile, gold traded higher by multiples. And so we think that is this dynamic. There's no single economic input that's more important to value all assets than inflation. And when it rises, it's bad for these traditional paper assets. When it rises, it's great for gold. Job 101 of portfolio construction or management, if you're an advisor or if you're for your, for your family, is you want to have some exposure to assets that complement one another. You don't have all your eggs in essentially one basket that's going to tank if inflation skyrockets, if stress increases. You want to have some exposure to these assets that thrive. And history tells us, don't dally, don't wait. This is about, again, management. If everything I'm saying is dead wrong and the Fed is able to bubblegum this miracle solution, right? And again, that, that has never happened. If all you had to do was print money out of your trouble, ancient Greece would still be standing. Ever since then, every government that's tried it has failed. But let's just say I'm totally wrong, and the government is going to be able to bring prosperity to all the markets. Well, if you do that, if that happens, and you have a small allocation to gold, you know, less than you know a quarter of your investments, then you're going to be in good shape because the other 75 plus percent of your portfolio is going to be doing great as the Fed makes this miracle work, pulls this trick out of their hat. However, if History plays out as it always has, and the Fed is only able to do this for a certain amount of time, and then reality comes back to the markets. Then you're going to be very happy you have this gold allocation. So the risk-reward is looking at ways that you can preserve your family's wealth. And this is about giving families more opportunities for what's coming. Gold is this bridge that gets one's wealth to the future amidst all this fog with your wealth intact. And then when you get there, you can reallocate to stocks, bonds, whatever it is you like to, to buy at that moment in time, because history suggests when we get to that point, gold will be worth a, a lot more. And those other assets will probably have peeled off from their all-time high valuations. One interesting thing that I just want to leave people with is that you suggest that people actually get physical gold themselves rather than investing in gold as, as you could do 
but you would suggest that they actually hold the physical gold themselves. That's correct. At the end of the day, again, gold is about diversifying one's wealth. And as you reflect on this, that includes diversifying your counter, what's called your counterparty risk, right? So if there's a problem with the stock exchange, like look at September 2001, right? The, the planes hit the World Trade Centers, all the exchanges, the US exchange was shuttered for over a week, right? That's just with one local incident, albeit it was horrific, right? But when you have physical gold, you're not dependent upon the exchanges being open. You're not dependent upon what any government says is a law because gold sits above the capital stack of any country. And we're seeing this play out again and again with, with the way Russia and Asia are moving. If your readers and, and viewers aren't aware, John Henry, what has also just happened is that the central banks around the world who make the rules, who print the money, who know what's coming, are investing more money in gold than they ever have since records have been kept. We are seeing record central bank investing in gold, and these nations are aggressively decreasing their exposure to the US dollar. So we would say to investors, if, if that's what you see the most informed sources doing with their money, it probably makes sense for you to do something similar, dial back your risk into what history says has been a great asset to be in during times of stress. I would encourage people, if you are thinking of investing in gold, do so with St. Joseph's Partners. LifeSite News uh, is indebted to them as we've partnered with them. If you click on the link in the bottom of this video, it will take you right to the LifeSite News page at St. Joseph's Partners so that you can make your investment there. Thank you so much, Drew, for filling us in on the latest as with regard to what is happening financially around the world. Thank you, John Henry. God bless you. And God bless all of you. We'll see you next time. Friends, we at LifeSite report the news about life, faith, family, and freedom with the goal of transforming the culture of life in your neighborhood and around the world. No other news agency does this like LifeSite, and no other precious metals company is as committed to this mission as St. Joseph's Partners. If you are inspired to pray and fast with greater zeal, journey with us in past episodes with Drew Mason for an even more insightful tip on prayer and fasting and joining the Pro-Life Precious Metals Initiative started by St. Joseph's Partners and LifeSite News. Never before have pro-lifers been able to directly finance the pro-life movement with precious metals, but now you can. Watch more and be inspired to join us. Check out just a portion of our interview with Drew now and click the link below. When you first told me this about the Bible being changed, I had to actually look it up because, well, I read the Dewey Rames and I looked it up and there it is in front of my face. And it is so strange. It's so strange to me because you'd think especially the evangelicals would have freaked out to notice that there's a change from the King James Version to the NIV, which is now the most popular one. So, okay, you tell us. I'm going to let you do the big reveal because you were. this was so stunning to me. Where is it changed and why? Beginning with the why you asked, I would call to mind all believers the quote that we have in the New Testament telling us, don't ever wonder why something happens, whether it's a financial or political issue, health, whatever it is. The scriptures tell us it happens because of the spiritual war we are in. We are so priceless that Jesus died for us 
And because that Satan hates us with a passion, with an intensity that is difficult for us to imagine. And so there's this constant battle going on around us that we're really oblivious to. And that is what is shaping everything. So imagine Jesus teaching one of his most important revelations in his whole ministry. He tells, he tells his believers, when you are confronted with evil, here is your playbook on how to defeat evil. You need to know this or you will never defeat evil. You will lose every time by prayer alone when evil is at its strongest. And where we see this teaching for centuries in the Dewey Reams and for centuries in the King James is in two places. The first is in Mark chapter 9. And where we, what we see happening there is the apostles have been on fire. They're just doing incredible miracles. And then it seems they come back together. And then these 12 men that Christ handpicked and hand-trained confront one evil person. And when they do, the evil person is actually able to take down the 12 apostles. So they have to run and get Christ to come and save the day. And he does, of course. And then it tells us explicitly when they had him alone, they said, Lord, why did this happen? Why couldn't we have victory here like we have in every other case? And then Jesus gives us this incredible teaching. He says, because this, when evil is strongest, can only be won with prayer and fasting. For centuries, that was a clear understanding. Similar, exact translation the King James. The parallel is in Matthew chapter 17. And in there, you'll see in verse 21, he says the same thing. Now, what has happened post-Vatican II, a very interesting development took place. Those references on how to defeat evil, what we must do and understand in order to defeat evil, were removed. So the teaching was taken from us on what we need to do. And think of what's happened to the church, to our countries since then. And so now, most modern Catholic Bibles, and like you referenced, the NIV, the ESV, say this can only be won by prayer. What's well, nonsensical? The apostles had prayed and they had lost. The teaching was about fasting. And it's even more bizarre in Matthew, because there you'll see verse 21 has entirely been omitted in many of these Bibles. So sequentially, the chapter goes verse 18, 19, 20, 22. Wait, what happened to verse 21? They took it out. And then you compare it in the King James and the Dewey Reams, and you see that was what was removed, this knowledge of how to defeat evil. I want everybody watching, please stop for a second. Get out your Bible, especially if you have a do if a, if you have an NIV, um, and you can do the comparison later. But just take out your NIV for a quick second. Let me just read to you. I'm going to read it first from Mark, Mark, verse 29. Uh, so I'll start at 29. Uh, excuse me, sorry, Mark. If from the Dewey Rams, it's it's actually 28, but it's in everything else, it's 29. So, and this is Jesus replying. Just as Drew said there, the, the conversation is about inability to cast out this demon, and Jesus does, and they ask him privately what. And the punchline is 28 in the Dury Rames and 29 and everything else. So you check 29 what it says. Remember Mark 9, 29, and in, in the Dury Rames 28. And he said to them, this kind can go out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Now you notice how the and fasting is missing from the NIV? and any of the other modern translations, look it up in the King James. It's the same prayer and fasting. Okay, now let's turn to Matthew. So in Matthew, you see again, here you have Matthew 17. What verse is it again, Drew? 21. Okay, so the whole verse is actually missing. 
That's that's just brilliant. So let's look at it in the Dewey Rames in Matthew. You're talking 1720, but in everything else, it's 21. Look at the numbers, just as Drew said. You see it goes 17, 18, 19, 20, 22. It's missing. Here it is in the Durarames. Again, same words. But this kind is not cast out but by prayer and fasting. It's so bizarre that in the other versions, it's, it's there in the King James Version too, by the way, but not in these modern versions. That's actually just skipped the verse altogether. This is unreal. My mind was blown. Um, okay. So, Drew, back to you. Why in the world have they done this? Because this doesn't make sense. How did they get away with this? Was there any explanation or was just, oh, well, let's just skip it? Well, how did they get away with it is a great question, John Henry. It was, I would equate it to a Navy SEAL type operation to be able to sneak into the church and undercover to do this and just decimate the church is an extraordinary event, one of evil's greatest victories in the last century plus. Now, I don't know. Anyway, I'd welcome anyone who did. We don't know who it was in the Catholic Church who championed this, but in the Protestant Church, there were two gentlemen, West Cotton Hoyt, who championed this to change the King James. It turned out they were later associated with the occult, and I suspect that's exactly what happened in the, in the Catholic Church as well. People who were in, in disguise, they were, they were the wolves in sheep's clothing who took this defense away from us. Now, to your point, John Henry, there is, of course, a justification. Evil always has a justification for what it does. And here, what the, the justification is, is that they discovered two manuscripts that they believed were the oldest found about the New Testament, the Vaticanus and the Sciatic, I believe is the, two, is the exact pronunciation of it. And those two manuscripts did not talk about fasting. So the argument was raised, since these are the oldest, they must be the most accurate, so we're just gonna omit fasting. But the reality is there are thousands of manuscripts of the Old Testament that talk about fasting. And those are dog-eared, meaning think about it, it's parchment, people were using them, they were referring to them, they were teaching by them. Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this program. To see more like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. Check the links in the description to read more and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all the latest life, family, faith, and freedom news. Thanks for watching, and may God bless you.